Welcome to Screen Cleaning here on BYU Radio, the show that's all about shining a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to highlight the best movies, TV shows, sports, songs, anything that has to do with entertainment that is good. We leave out all the bad, the gossip, and and the hearsay. And we like to focus on things that are going to make you happy and that are going to lift your spirits. And today we've got a great show for you because, you know, a big theme on the show is trying to dig up old content or dig up content that doesn't get enough press and let you know about it so that you can enjoy it as much as we do. And we've got a few different categories of what we're going to call obscure movies here on the show today. And uh, the first one is really the one that sparked this idea, Cole. We're going to have five categories, like I said. The first one is the obscure musical. Cole, you've heard me talk about this musical on the show probably many times, right? A couple. Yeah, I'm familiar with it because (laughs) you have made me familiar with it. Okay, it's it's been highlighted on our segment Panning for Good, which we'll come up with uh, later on the show and, today. And by the way, really, this whole show could be seen as an extended version of Panning for Good. Every single week we try to you know dig a little deeper to find something that's more obscure for you. And so today we're just expanding it to the entire premise of the program. This is the the Panning for Good extended edition where we just talk about a bunch of obscure movies. I like that. Screen cleaning, panning for good edition. And we also try to tie panning for good into something that's going on in the world right now. And so the reason Bugsy Malone is what launched this idea of obscure films for us today is its director, Alan Parker, passed away this week. Director of Bugsy Malone, fame, Evita. He had a knack for musical direction. And so, Jeff, the fan that he is of Bugsy Malone wanted to be able to talk about this movie. And it got us thinking about other obscure stuff that we wanted to talk about today. This is a musical from 1976, and it's got some big names in it. Scott Bayo, Jodie Foster. And really, this is a film that they start in as kids. This is a film that kind of has a unique premise to it. Gangster movies are not really unique. They've been around since the beginning of film. But what makes this movie unique is that the adult characters in this film are all played by kids. There's not a single person in this film that is older than 17. And so you have to make some adjustments if you've got kids playing adults, right? So instead of shooting bad guys or good guys, I guess, too, with real guns, you're using what's called a splurge gun that shoots out this pie-like substance and somehow that makes you die anyway. Um, but then also they can't have kids driving real cars. So they modified, they put these car, old 20s car shells onto basically these bikes. And so you see these kids driving these cars as if they're these really expensive bicycles. And it's so charming. And, you know, beyond that, it might not sound as good to have these kids that are going through puberty singing the songs. And so you also have adults dubbing the voices of the kids. So it looks a little bit strange, but I discovered it as a kid. And it's funny to call it an obscure film, Cole, because when it came out, it was kind of a big deal. 
like I said, it had Scott Bayo and Jodie Foster, who is really having this blossoming career. She went on to do at that same year to do um, Taxi Driver with, uh, you know, obviously Martin Scorsese. Um, but the whole idea of this film came to pass because the director, Alan Parker, was a big fan of gangster movies. And he had four children and they used to go on these big, long road trips together. And on these road trips, he started telling them the story of a gangster called Bugsy Malone. And they'd ask him questions and he would make up answers based on the memories that he had watching old movies as a kid. And it was his oldest son who actually came up with the idea of you should make all of the heroes that all the kids should star in this film. So that's what he did. And when he was casting the movie, he wanted he wanted like actual kids who could actually portray bad guys or kids or uh, characters that could misbehave. Right. Yeah. So he went into a class and he asked for who's the naughtiest kid that you have in class. And all of the kids unanimously said, it's John Cassisi. And that actor got the role based on that glowing, I guess, recommendation from his classmates. And uh, Scott Bayo kind of had a similar um, experience when he was auditioning. He didn't want to audition. He wanted to go out and play with his friends, but it was raining. And so I guess that put a kibosh on the playing with the friends. So he's like, whatever, I'll go in and audition. And he was in a bad mood and he threw down the script and stormed out of the room. And that is what got him the role in this film. And uh, really the star of the movie, in my opinion, Cole, and you would think I would say Jodie Foster, who is fantastic in the movie, is Paul Williams, the person who came up with the score and the songs. And this is a movie that it got three Golden Globe nominations when it came out. Best Picture was one of them. And Paul Paul Williams got an Oscar nomination for the score to the movie. And really, the music is just so catchy, unforgettable. And Paul Williams is one of the many adults that dubs over these kids' voices. Just so charming. That's my pick for Obscure Musical. And I understand you've got one as well, Cole. There's a fundamental question you have to answer when you're curating a list like this, when you want to you know, bring to light an underrated thing or an obscure thing, because you have to find something that's actually obscure that people haven't heard of, but you also want to be accessible enough that people can enjoy listening to you talk about these things. And so do you look at movies that only had a certain threshold of box office returns or, you know, movies that were totally snubbed at the awards ceremonies? You, you have to find some way to quantify what is obscure. And I chose to do this through the app Letterboxd. Now, it's an IMDb kind of thing where you can go in and search movies and see who was in the cast and crew. But its main function is to just click I've watched this movie. And you can look at your profile and see all the movies you've watched. And when you go to a movie, it shows how many other people have said that they have watched it. And it's got a decent enough size user base that when you go to something like Parasite, right, the best picture winner of last year, it tells you that 600,000 users have gone in and said, I've watched that. So I looked at my list of movies that I say that I've seen, and I sorted them from the least amount of people that have said that they've seen it. So just the empirically 
most obscure movie that is on my list. And at the very bottom, it's a bunch of like festival movies that I went to to go review for my job. And they're not really great obscure movies. They're obscure for a reason. But the studio movie, the, the biggest release that's at the bottom of my list of other people saying that they've watched on Letterboxd is a 1970s musical also. It is The Man of La Mancha. Oh, yeah. It, I love that. A take on Don Quixote and, and originally a Broadway um, stage play as well. It, it is a musical going through this person who thinks he's the hero of the story that everyone else just sees as a fool. Uh, the music is wonderful, and it's got the beautiful Sophia Loren in it. It's, it's I think, a commonly known musical if you're familiar with musicals, but sometimes there's a generational gap that can occur where, hey, it was just a musical in the 70s to a lot of people nowadays, to your modern film nerd, it is a little bit more obscure. And again, I have that defense that not a lot of people have gone into specifically say they've watched it on Letterboxd to say this is actually an obscure movie. To my parents, they're going to laugh at this and say, yeah, everyone's probably seen that. But in my generation, they have not. That's true, Cole. All right. Well, how about a category all about storytelling, and more specifically, potentially unreliable narrators. And we've seen a really good example of this just recently in the film Knives Out, right? Which is not an obscure movie. It made quite a bit of money. And I hope that they actually make the sequel that they say that they're going to make. And I love that in the sequel, uh, Ryan Johnson is talking about having Daniel Craig's character, Benoit Blanc, have a different accent, which was kind of funny because that was a, a kind of a running gag in the movie Knives Out. But the reason Knives Out features unreliable narrators or characters is because there are people that are being interrogated and um, they have their own version of how things played out, right? I love the scenes in which you get to see the different uh, members of the family huddling around the grandpa as he's blowing out the candles to his cake. Now, really, there could only be one or two people that do that, but it always changes whoever's telling the story, right? So that's a recent example. And another recent example, just also from last year, an Oscar-nominated film, Joker very much leans into the unreliableness of who he is. He goes through a... a delusion for a while uh, of of a girlfriend that he may or may not have. It's a very interesting kind of almost thriller kind of an aspect. I mean, I think of Shutter Island where what is even reality is brought into, you know, question because of who we are tracking through the story. The unreliable narrator is a fascinating trope for you to use. And, and it's different the way the different genres can utilize it. Yeah, and one of my favorite examples of storytelling in movies and also somebody that is unreliable, the two sometimes go hand in hand, right? I mean, storytelling, and if you want a great example of storytelling, you need to listen to Sam Payne on the Appleseed, which you can hear daily on BYU Radio, either on 107.9 or on the podcast. You would just Google the Appleseed podcast. And storytelling, the art of storytelling is interesting because it kind of lends itself to stretching the truth and making the experience bigger than it actually was. And then we're also relying on 
information that is decades old, right? And so not not necessarily you're trying to lie, but just your memory may be a little foggy, right? So one of my uh, favorite examples of that is the Tim Burton-directed film Big Fish, where there's this strained relationship between a father and son, partially due to the fact that this father insists on you know, living through these stories that may or may not be true, and they're too tall to be true. But uh, the way that it's presented and the production design and the characters that show up in the film are really quite charming. And it's just a good story about a father and a son uh, reconciling. But surely is one of my... Oh, go ahead. Surely a Tim Burton movie isn't the obscure one that we're talking about today, though, right? Oh, no, no. My pick for an obscure storytelling unreliable narrator would be a a 1988 film directed by Terry Gilliam. Now you may be familiar with Terry Gilliam's work as one of the members of the comedy troupe Monty Python. And uh, he, it has this knack for surrounding himself with people that are in his comedy troupe in his movies anyway, but also people that are just big fans of his, right? There's a cameo in this film from, of all people, Sting. And the only (laughs) reason that he has a cameo in the film is because he happened to be Terry Gilliam's neighbor at the time. (laughs) And I I can only imagine that Robin Williams was a friend of Terry Gilliam because when the film, when the budget went way over, uh, they turned to Robin Williams, who did this movie without being paid, and he was uncredited. But he plays kind of a big role in the film. But I think it was all made up later on, three years later, when Robin Williams starred in Terry Gilliam's Fisher King, and he got nominated for an Oscar. So I think that makes up for it a little bit. Uh, This is Uma Thurman's first acting job, and it featured, as I said, uh, one of his Monty Python cohorts, Eric Idle, who, if you need a reference for er who Eric Idle is, if you're a fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and if you're not, why not? Um, he played Sir Robin, who the coward. Brave Sir Robin ran away, bravely ran away, away. That's Eric Idle. The, the musical category um, was the last one, Jeff. We're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he talked about how grueling and miserable of an experience it was to make this film. He said, I don't want to be in a Terry Gilliam film. I want to go see a Terry Gilliam film. And I found a little anecdote online that, I I hope it's true because it's certainly funny. Speaking of unreliable narrators Mm. and storytelling, but according to Eric Idle, uh, Terry Gilliam tried to convince him to shave his head for his character in the film. And like most people, he responded, I don't want to do that. Right. And so Terry Gilliam said, all right, if you shave your head, I'll shave my head, you know, and you've heard stories about that, like, like that before, like in the making of Zombieland, you hear about how Woody Harrelson would agree to make the movie if the director would agree to uh, eat or to be a vegan during the filming. Um, so the funny thing is, though, Eric Idle shaved his head for the character and then Terry Gilliam reneged on that deal and did not shave his head. Oh. So, yeah, yeah, but. Eric Idle is right that you do want to see this particular Terry Gilliam film because it is so imaginative and so big in scope went way over budget. 
during the production of the film, Columbia Pictures was kind of it. They were ousting their CEO and getting in a new CEO. And a lot of times when that happens, they the new CEO isn't really loyal to productions that are already going on right they want to look forward i mean we're seeing that with fox and disney's merger right now how disney will just toss whatever fox property is still sitting around to whatever streaming device they can whereas their projects they're kind of holding on to and want those big theatrical releases we're waiting for yeah yeah and you know they only made like 48 prints of the film so they weren't really uh committed to this film which is a shame because it was a super expensive film to make and it's such a good film cole so it starts off in this war-torn european city we're never really told where but um this city is under attack by the turks and so while these these cannons are being shot and these wars are being fought there is this theater troupe inside the city that is trying to perform while all the craziness is happening outside. And this theater troupe is trying to portray the life of Baron Munchausen through all these various adventures that he was on. And while this is going on during all the mayhem, there's this old cranky man in this, this, uh, you know, this outfit that looks like he is an, either an adventurer or he is, has fought in a war And he comes in and says, this is a pack of lies. I'm the real Baron Munchausen. That's not how it happened at all. Let me tell you how it all happened. So then um, (laughs) you it kind of morphs into this really production heavy version of his life. And you get to see these various adventures that he was in. And it starts off with this he makes this wager with a sultan. The sultan is pouring Baron Munchausen a glass of wine and Baron Munchausen says, oh, this is okay. And the sultan is kind of insulted. And Baron Munchausen says, I wager that I can find a better bottle of wine that is a thousand miles away and I can produce it in an hour's time. And so he has this, he has this group of, of, uh, cohorts that have these powers right so eric idol is this man that can run super fast and that's how he's going to get the bottle of wine and he has this little person that can uh blow really strong and and blow things away and he's got the strongest man in the world and he also has this guy that is like the best sniper in the world you know and he promises the sultan that if he can't make true on this bet that the Sultan can take his head and the Sultan wagers all the gold that the strongest man can carry. So you can see where the strongest man is going to come in. (laughs) And there are just stories like that, that utilize the talents of these various uh, team members. And it's so charming nominated for a bunch of Oscars, especially on the production side of things. And uh, it's one of those films that, gosh, I wish more people would see, now it's PG, but keep in mind it's 80s PG. So there's oddly some nudity in it that you need to watch out for. But uh, man, is it beautiful to look at, and it's just so charming of a film. I would recommend watching The Adventures of Baron Munchausen because it's got an unreliable narrator. Maybe, maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he wasn't. You got to watch it to find out. And. 
I find it interesting the way some stories can use unreliable narrators to tell the story of a real person, right? So this is kind of just all in the mind of Terry Gilliam, which is a, a fascinating mind that you would want to get inside of. But there, there's a few other movies that we've seen come out recently that take the take real life stories and paint them from the perspective of certain of the characters that may or may not be reliable, right? So I, Tanya yeah. was a big budget and Oscar-nominated example of that back in 2017. And, and there were a couple others that kind of came out just to streaming, like A Feudal and Stupid Gesture or The Laundromat recently that just kind of bend what's actually going on. But I think the coolest way that this has ever been done was from 2018's American Animals. It It kind of paints itself as a documentary where it actually has the real kids that took part in this little crime heist. The The plot is a pretty simple one. It's just these college kids that are looking for a little extra spending money, uh, and they realize that there's a lot of really valuable books in their you know special collections part of their library on campus. And so they... One of one of the kids has like library access, and so they figure, oh, this might be an easy steal and and sell, and and it's a real little crime thing that happened to these kids, and it kind of you know caught caught the country up for a second. Uh, but the way they tell the story is through having those actual kids that were part of the heist appear in documentary style. But then when we have flashbacks, you know, a lot of documentaries try to dramatize a little bit. But in these flashbacks, they're actually portrayed by actors and they lean heavy into the dramatization of their story. One of the fellows played by Evan Peters, fantastic, and Blake Jenner. And, and the, those kids, the, the fictionalized versions, having their interactions drive the whole story. Um, I, I think it's fascinating, you know, the way they chose to do this. And I, I've never quite seen that done before. And that's why... I want to mention it as a great obscure film. It's interesting also to kind of consider why it is that some films end up obscure, right? This is a recent one. It was kind of on people's mind. It was at Sundance. You know, it also had some awards acclaim, and yet it still kind of slipped through the cracks. You mentioned the production companies changing for Baron Munchausen. For American Animals, after Sundance, it was bought up by a certain production company that you and I are very familiar with the name of ever heard a movie pass jeff don't say it, don't say it cole yeah uh movie that pass is the ventures the name that we should never mention ever again they were the ones that bought american animals they distributed this movie that was one of their only distribution product projects because they were just trying to figure things out and american animals a really great movie was a casualty of them not really knowing what they were doing. It reminds me kind of of the sixth season of Community, one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. We wanted six seasons in a movie, and we finally got a sixth season, but it was just kind of the experiment, the pet project of Yahoo Screen that doesn't exist anymore, and it became a casualty of just someone that doesn't know what they're doing, throwing money at something because they hope that it'll work, and, and then it doesn't. And so now we get to just get to talk about it as an obscure thing that slipped through the cracks. All right, Cole. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to mention a film that I doubt Cole has seen, which is surprising because it's a horror movie and it is obscure to be sure. And I will mention what it is when we return here on Screen Cleaning.
How's it going, Bill and Ted? Ted, it's us again. How's it going, Bill? Not bad, Bill. And you? Bad. We came to help you guys in your most unfortunate situation. That, of course, is from the very funny film, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which I actually prefer over the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And another reason that uh, we're listening to that, not only are we talking about obscure films, which Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Excellent Adventure certainly are not obscure films, but uh, that is a film that should have been out already, right, Cole? And is now going to come out in September simultaneously on demand and uh, in theaters. We're talking, of course, about Bill and Ted Face the Music, the much-anticipated threequel to those other two films i'm anticipating it i'm anticipating everything after the long year that 2020 has been for new releases everything counts as being much anticipated absolutely and i watched the trailer so did you and i think it actually kind of looks funny but anyway uh the reason we're talking about bill and ted's bogus journey is because because it is one of the many examples of films featuring the evil twin there you heard the robotic versions of bill and ted who are not coming to help bill and ted but are actually coming to kill bill and ted there's also muppets most wanted which is i one of my favorite muppet movies certainly has the best soundtrack of any of the muppet movies and that features constantine who uh, puts a mole on Kermit, which successfully uh, frames Kermit as the evil Constantine. And Constantine takes his place on their world tour for to accomplish his nefarious deeds. There's also Scott Pilgrim versus the world, which I know you're a big fan of that movie, right, Cole? You betcha. And at the very climax after he's defeated the evil exes he has to go up against basically nega scott i mean this the evil twin is a common concept for those of us that have played video games shadow link is a big antagonist at the end of ocarina of time and he comes back again and so when we got a movie based on a comic book that's inspired by the video game aesthetic then of course the evil twin had to be the big boss at the end oh yeah for sure and uh, a favorite of mine, a romantic comedy, Dave, which they're not exactly twins, but Kevin Klein plays this really great guy named Dave, who's a social worker, and he happens to look exactly like the president of the United States, So, who is actually a big jerk in the movie, also played by Kevin Klein. And so who do they call when the president of the United States has a stroke? They call on this social worker and they have him in secret pretend to be the president of the United States. Very funny, charming movie. Kevin Klein is great in it, as is Sigourney Weaver, and it's directed by Sigourney Weaver's uh, frequent collaborator, Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters. Anyway, the moment you've all been waiting for. What's the obscure film that I want to talk about that features an evil twin? Well, you've got to go all the way back to 1972, and this is the oldest film that I have on my list, and it's a film called, now listen carefully so you don't misunderstand, it's called The Other. Not to be confused with The Others, starring Nicole Kidman. Which I have, but of course, actually, seen. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And those two movies actually have similar themes. I won't mention what similar themes there are. But uh, as with many other obscure films, this is another one that I discovered on VHS that we owned. And so it got a lot of usage in my household. And it's about this little boy and his really nasty evil twin that, uh, you know, he's good and the evil twin is bad and he's trying to stop his evil twin from doing all these terrible things throughout the movie. And uh, he also has this grandma who plays what's called the great game. And this is something where they can, they can transfer their uh, conscious mind to other beings. So for instance, by just by sitting and concentrating, he can transfer his thoughts and his perspective to, let's say, a crow that's flying overhead. And that comes up at a very climactic part of the movie. And again, this is a movie back in 1972, so it's not R. But there are, if there's an evil twin, you know there's going to be some deaths. And the deaths in this movie, there are at least two of them that are actually quite disturbing. So I guess I kind of feel bad highlighting this movie, the other, but I wanted to highlight it because it is obscure and it was scary to me as a kid and it would certainly be scary or at least disturbing to you now. That is my pick for my obscure evil twin movie. There's a few different ways to do the evil twin. And as I mentioned before, comic books and video games have highlighted it a lot Often, whenever I'm referring to an evil twin, I'll just call them the Bizarro version of it. And the reason we do that is because of Superman and Bizarro world, where uh, he goes up against basically the evil version of himself with a backwards S on his chest. But Bizarro, although not (laughs) featured in any movies yet, has been heavily featured in television shows. He was in The Challenge of the Super Friends and, of course, my favorite Bruce Timm-produced Justice League cartoon of the early 2000s. And so that's not quite obscure enough. If I'm going for an obscure comic book team, it would be the masters of evil that the Avengers go up against. People think they know everything about Marvel nowadays because there's been 23 different movies. And so it's tough to find something that's still obscure to your modern movie audience. The Masters of Evil haven't been there yet, but they're basically just a bizarro team version of the Avengers where each of their of their guys has a complementary or, or supplementary power to what the Avengers can do. And so they match up really well. It, it, it's a really easy like when you're drawing them to just have each person go up against the person that they're they, they match up with. Uh, and so the Masters of Evil Uh, It's an easy trope to use in comics, and that's one, and it's a team that we haven't seen yet. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast 10 years from now, and every single Marvel story that's ever been written has been turned into a movie, including the Masters of Evil, they're probably not obscure anymore. But remember, in 2020, they were. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything comic books is going to be obscure to me, Cole. And I don't say that to disparage... Uh, comic books, but I just, it's not something that I ever got into, but I've kind of always wanted to. Oh, the the um, books themselves are fantastic and you get so much more of the backstory. You can only tell so much of a character in a hundred and if, well, 
nowadays movies are stretched three hours for an Avengers Endgame, but you can still only get (laughs) so much of a character out of a three-hour movie, whereas these monthly issue comic books can really draw a story out and and you get to know what's going on. It's It's still a great medium to get into, especially considering that everyone is familiar. They're not that obscure anymore because everyone knows the characters from the big budget movies. Now, Cole, if you're looking at this list of movies that I'm sharing with you, one could easily argue these aren't obscure movies. These are just movies that have a lot of nostalgia for you, right? That may be true, but I mean, had you ever heard of the film The Other? I have not. I hadn't heard of any of the movies that you're talking about other than when you have made me aware of them, because obscurity often is a generational thing. Right. And and you would even argue that obscurity equals not good, right? Maybe there's a reason that it's obscure. <laughs> but sometimes, often. as I've shared already, there are external forces at hand that are at play that, that make it so that these films are just not going to be found, right? Budgetary reasons. Um, this one, I'm wondering if it's because maybe it was too terrifying for its target audience, which was children. This is 1985. Oh, before I spoil that, I should mention what the category of this one is. It was all a dream. Or was it, Cole? (laughs) So we've got some recent examples of that with Isn't It Romantic? Starring Rebel Wilson. Uh, It's kind of a funny spoof of the romantic comedy genre itself. You're a big fan of Adam Sandler's Click, right? First movie to ever make me cry. Wow. As as an adult, I probably cried a little bit when I was three years old watching Free Willy. But like, as a person that knew why they were crying in movies, the ending of Click got there. And, And very uniquely for Click, just because it was all a dream doesn't mean it made me feel any less attached to the way I was feeling. A lot of times it's a really cheap way to to make everything that happened during your movie not matter. Um, But Click still stuck the landing after they said, hey, none of it really happened because Adam Sandler did remember and it was still real to him. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes all it takes is a dream for us to wake up, Cole. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Nothing. Okay. Uh, Um, Similar theme to Click would be The Family Man, where, again, he gets a glimpse, kind of like It's a Wonderful Life. He gets a glimpse of what what his life might have been like had he married Taya Leone, had he not taken that flight and started that new job that ended their relationship. And uh, it's it's an okay film. I like Nicolas Cage. I, I like Taya Leone. And Jeremy Piven is in it. And, again, similar themes of it was all a dream or was it? So... Getting back to my obscure pick, too terrifying for the target audience of kids, but it's not going to be obscure much longer because now you can find it on Disney Plus. And boy, oh boy, do I hope people find it on Disney Plus. 1985's Return to Oz. So Oz or uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz is pretty much the ultimate example of it was all a dream or was it? Because I mean, there are people in her life that were there in the land of Oz with her in different forms, right? It's also the greatest example of a not obscure movie. In fact, if I had to name one movie that I think 
the greatest percentage of the general population of America has seen the least obscure movie imaginable, (laughs) it would be The Wizard of Oz. I know, right? So it's such a tragedy that this movie just completely bombed, right? So it's uh they they made use of Jim Henson's studio because there are some really great puppets and creatures in this film that again might be a little too terrifying for your kids. In fact, I I watched this movie recently and I still think it's terrifying. In fact, I've just to give you some perspective, Cole. I recently showed my kids the movie Jurassic Park, which in retrospect might not have been the best idea because my six-year-old was terrified from the moment the lawyer gets eaten off the toilet. Um, But I don't think I'm quite ready to show them this film. Hopefully that will give you some perspective. But man, it's it's one of those movies where I, I visited recently and thought, is this movie really going to hold up or is this all about nostalgia for me? And I actually think that it still holds up. It's still terrifying. It's still very imaginative. And the reason it's so terrifying is listen to some of these characters. There's the gnome king who, who uh, if you can't, um, if you can't pick out the Holy grail, they're, they're trying to find this, this uh, knickknack later in the film and if you can't guess it correctly, then you get turned into one of those knickknacks and you'll stay there forever. <sighs> and uh, so he's he's terrifying. There are the wheelers who roll around on all fours and really are chasing after Dorothy the whole time. They're terrifying. But really, probably the most terrifying character of all in the movie is Princess Mombi who starts off seeming like a very pleasant character because she's this young, beautiful princess, but she's got this weird ring around her neck and come to find out, yeah, that nice, beautiful head that she currently has on top of her shoulders is just one of the many heads that she has in her possession and she can change them at her own will and the one that inhabits the body uh, the majority of the time, Princess Mombi, is terrifying. And there's a scene in the movie where Dorothy has to, I don't want to spoil too much, but I will because just to give you an idea of how terrifying it is. She has to get this key that is currently around the wrist of Princess Mombi who is sleeping so that she can get this special flying dust that they need so they can escape from her castle. And of course, she wakes up while Dorothy is stealing this key. And uh, all of the heads start screaming all at once. And oh my gosh, it's terrifying. This is a movie that you've got to see, though, because it's, like I said, it's so imaginative, pretty scary. And there are some great, there's some great foreshadowing that uh, oh, really pays off throughout the movie. You got to see Return to Oz from 1985. Check it out on Disney+. And it is sort of a sequel to The Wizard of Oz. So how did right. a sequel not get the attention that it deserves? Well, because it probably wasn't what people expected. There were scary elements of The Wizard of Oz, but it was balanced so perfectly. The Wizard of Oz is a great movie that it, it stuck in the cultural zeitgeist, whereas Return to Oz got lost to time because it was a disappointment at the time. 
I not not a musical, by the way, not a musical. Also, yeah, you you if you don't shoe in somewhere over the rainbow somehow, then how are we going to know it's a Wizard of Oz movie? I I've got a similar example from the video game world. Super Mario Brothers is truly the least obscure video game that has ever been made, but the original Super Mario Brothers two at the time was a disappointment and now has been kind of lost to time. Even though, and this is another example of generational obscurity, anyone that was alive at the time of the original Nintendo Entertainment System remembers Super Mario Bros. 2 um, either as a disappointment or some weird kind of fever dream that was so weird and so different from the original. Um, But kids nowadays, as we're 30-some-odd Mario titles away from that original Super Mario 2, it is obscure to them and a, a, a big part of the ending, right? So the whole game mechanic of Super Mario is you just, you know, start from the left, go to the right, jump on top of Goombas. Super Mario 2 <laughs> was entirely different. Uh, you got four different characters. There's Mario, Luigi, Toad, and Princess Peach. They each had different pow- like different superpowers that they had, different like reasons why you would pick that character. Mario was very even. Luigi could jump a little bit higher and slid around. Peach had her little parasail. Um, And so these are elements that have been continued on in the Mario franchise. The first time we saw Shy Guys were in Super Mario 2. But at the time, it was just so radically different from the first one that people were disappointed by it. And oh, by the way, at the very end of the game, when you beat it, it turns out it was all a dream. Mario is waking up because they had to find an excuse for why it was so different. The reason behind the scenes was they took an existing Japanese game, Doki Doki Panic, and just kind of did what video games do often, and they kind of replaced the skins, right? They There were these characters that already existed in that game, and they said, oh, we'll just put Mario on this one, Luigi on this one, etc., etc., um, and they turned it into a Mario game because they were looking for something different. So disappointing at the time gets lost to the annals of time, but now is an underrated classic that kind of was the first to break away and gives us a lot of the like modern, the new Super Mario Brothers that try to utilize, you know, the the different mechanics of the different characters. That's going back to, and we have that because of Super Mario 2. Cole, now you're speaking more my language because I actually own that game albeit not in the original Nintendo format, but on as part of Super Mario All-Stars on the Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. But let it be known, I also own the, the NES system with the original Super Mario Brothers. So, yeah, you're speaking my language. I didn't know it was all just a dream, though. Thanks. Now I, I don't have to pass the game anymore. Obviously, Jeff has never beaten Super Mario 2. And, and there was also <laughs> Super Mario The Lost Levels, which looks more like the original Super Mario Brothers and was in, Jap- in, and was in Japan released as Super Mario 2. Well, Cole, for this last category, this is a, a genre that I know. It's a, an entire genre that is near and dear to your heart, the time travel genre. We could certainly talk about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban because there's an element of time travel. That's the first time travel movie. Jeff, Back to the Future, Planet of the Apes, so many great, you know, the Terminator franchise. There's all kinds of time travel movies. 
those are the obvious choices. And I wanted to mention Harry Potter because we're sitting on Harry Potter's birthday right oh, yeah. now. Happy so birthday. that's what my family is going to be doing this weekend. There's Star Trek was one of, one of the most enjoyable times I've ever had at the movie theater from 2009. Which Star course, Trek? There's... Oh, the 2009, because they also time oh, yeah. travel in Star Trek four and they also time travel sure. in Star Trek first contact. And they also time travel in many, many episodes of the TV series. But again, you're not speaking my language unless you're speaking 2009 Star Trek. Um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, of course, right? Mentioned that one. The movie, yeah, the movie that I want to mention, though, is probably the least obscure movie that I've shared today. And it's a movie from 1981, and it's another one of Terry Gilliam's films. So it's called Time Bandits, and it's really, in my opinion, Terry Gilliam's version of The Wizard of Oz, because it also has an element of was it a dream or was it not a dream? And it starts off in a really cool way because there's a little bit of foreshadowing where you see there's this little boy that has all of these different toys on the floor of his room that really play a theme later on in the movie. And just like with some of Terry Gilliam's other films, you have to surround yourself with some of your cohorts, right? So there are some wonderful cameos from John Cleese, who uh, shows up as Robin Hood. Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall are kind of this doomed couple that uh, <laughs> he always seems to have some sort of uh, bodily problem that is preventing them from getting together. And it's they're always kind of... Um, ambiguous as to what they are they never spell out what they are and then sean connery has a cameo in this film and it stars these uh this team of little people that were part of the team that created the universe right along with the supreme being of course and the idea that uh, the premise is that seven days was not enough time to complete the entire universe. And so there exist all of these holes throughout the universe through which these little people can travel to different times. And they use this ability to steal things from all of these different time periods, right? Hence the name Time Bandits. And so they're on the run from the Supreme Being. They're on the run from this character named Evil Genius who wants to steal their map so that he can use it for his own purposes. And it is, again, you can't watch this movie without thinking about The Wizard of Oz. Uh, not, not because of the fact that there are little people that star in this film, but mainly because throughout the film, there are characters that are in his reality, but also in this alternate reality. And so there's that element as well. It is a funny script, funny idea, and it's really quite entertaining. You've got to check out Time Bandits. But again, compared to all these other films, that's the one that you're most likely to have heard of and or seen. Yeah, I, I've heard of this one, but it's probably just also because I am very familiar with the time travel movie. And time travel has gone from being a weird, niche sci-fi concept to being in, again, modern-wise, maybe the least obscure movie of all time, at least if you look at box office numbers, because Avengers Endgame used time travel as the core of its 
driving you know toward the middle of that movie when we got to go back and see the greatest hits of the avengers they did it through time travel and you're you got to remember that hulk in that movie says hey it's time travel right either it's all a joke or none of it is and time travel joke movies are fantastic right you got you got the the austin powers movies use time travel a little bit uh you know groundhog day of course is one of the funniest time travel concept things kid in king arthur's court those are all funny and well-known time travel movies but for my money the best time travel movie is also the only one that takes it entirely seriously and this is in my opinion my favorite obscure movie like if if you had a little graph and on one axis speaking of being a nerd right on one axis you had movies that I like and on the other you have most obscure two people the one that utilizes both the one that's going to go the furthest up on both sides is the 2004 film Primer Uh, this was a very very low budget and very serious look at time travel that tells the story of these two guys that are scientists that just in the course of doing experiments on gravity and trying to you know come up with ways to make an invention basically make money they stumble upon time travel and it's not the kind of time travel that takes you back and gets you to you know hang out with socrates and do your little history project <laughs> like this is the kind of time travel where you you set up this box where inside of it some science is happening to where it's bending the way we perceive time and so in order to travel through time you have to start the machine. You can never go back further than where your machine is set up and started. And it takes time in order to time travel, right? If you want to go back in time six hours, you need to be sitting in that box for what feels like to you six hours. The The science on this movie almost makes it inaccessibly obscure. And there's a reason that not a lot of people have seen it because it looks cheap. The acting is done not exactly by your biggest budget actors, and it does not talk down to its audience. It uses very technical... I mean, I I studied statistics in college. I, I know a little bit about math, but I'm not a quantum physicist. Like, all of this science is above my head, too. But it's fun to just kind of watch a movie that is talking in real terms that those people would use and not just making it so that people can understand it. Well, that you've whet my appetite for that, Cole, and I'm going to try to find Primer. And I don't think it's too obscure that I can't find it. And really, none of these movies slash games slash comic books are too obscure that you wouldn't be able to find them. But uh, we do encourage you to to look them up at your local library or to stream them online because these are movies and, and other forms of entertainment that we feel are good enough for us to highlight here on the show today and really an expand in an expanded version of what we like to call panning for good, a segment that we do each and every week here on Screen Cleaning and a segment that we will come back to when we return. This is Screen Cleaning on BYU Radio. Think about it. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future and your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. Exactly. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> Welcome 
welcome back into Screen Cleaning, this special Panning for Good themed episode of Screen Cleaning. We've been trying to find the obscure and find the good amongst the movies that we've been talking about already. And now it's that time of the show where we always look a little deeper and tell you what's been going on in the world. And today, it's definitely going to take some panning because... Jeff, you and I might be the only two people left on the planet that still have a Quibi subscription, uh, but there was a really cool thing to come out on Quibi this past week, and we want to highlight it. And you can check it out on YouTube as well. It is a home movie quarantine version of The Princess Bride, one of your favorite movies of all time. A bunch of actors and actresses got together just in the comfort of their own home, and Quibi, which is a native to your phone kind of a streaming service, right? There's no, you can flip it sideways to get the landscape view, but you don't get a lot more if it was on a TV. And so these celebrities just with their phones at their home with whatever costumes or props that they could tie together, just shot a remake of a lot of The Princess Bride. It actually goes through each Quibi episode is between five and seven minutes, and there's 10 episodes of this. And so it's about an hour of The Princess Bride where you get all these different people quoting exactly The Princess Bride, interacting with each other even though they're not in the same room and swinging around lightsabers or kitchen knives instead of swords, and it's a lot of fun. Cole, you know what I love about this? We've mentioned several times on the show today how... A lot of these, some of these movies that we talked about were discovered not in the movie theaters, but on home video, right? And The Princess Bride likely would have been lost in obscurity or would have stayed an obscure film had it not been for VHS and word of mouth. And now, all these years later, so many people have seen and enjoyed The Princess Bride to the point where, yeah, celebrities are willing to band together. To put together, you know, two thirds of the movie themselves, just rehashing all the lines from the movie. I think it's a testament to the power of the VHS and the power of word of mouth. And thank goodness Princess Bride is not one of these films that we're talking about today as an obscure film, because it really is one of my favorite films. And the last time I watched it, I thought, this is what I love about movies. This is just one of the perfect movies ever made and i love it cult classics can reach out and find a bigger audience later even if their box office wasn't as big as it could have been and and of course yeah princess bride not exactly obscure here in 2020 that's my favorite thing that i saw this week jeff what was some of the cool news that you saw you know i saw a couple a couple of cool trailers One of them is a trailer for a Liam Neeson movie called Honest Thief. And I love the title because it tells you exactly what it is, right? He's a thief that has a meets this girl and they start dating and he wants to come clean and he wants to turn over all the money that he stole from all these banks. And uh, there are these two corrupt FBI agents who come to investigate. And sure enough, he was telling the truth and they decide, well, maybe we should just steal the money. And so... Uh, it's Liam Neeson going after these guys because in the process of all this, they kill another FBI agent to cover their tracks. And uh, yeah, it looks like everything you hope a Liam Neeson movie would be these days. And then also I was surprised. I didn't even know this was a thing or that it was being made. Brendan Gleeson, Mad-Eye Moody, 
uh, or Knuckles McGinty from one of our favorite movies, Paddington, Paddington 2. Two. Mm-hmm. He is going to play Donald Trump in a miniseries that's based on James Comey's uh, book, A Higher Loyalty. And it's it's described as a behind-the-headlines account of the historically turbulent events surrounding the 2016 presidential election and its aftermath, which divided a nation. And he's actually quite good in the little snippet of a trailer that I got, so that might be really interesting. I think I sniff an Emmy nomination there. The The last thing that I saw that we can look forward to, Onward was one of the last movies we got before theaters shut down. Soul has been postponed, but we do know that there will be another Pixar movie on the horizon. We got our first look at Luca, their newest arrival sometime for 2021-22. Well, that's exciting. And Cole, I've had such a great time talking about some of these more obscure films and really doing a whole episode of Panning for Good because these are all movies that uh, we ought to check out. And, you know, the the uh, portions of the movies that maybe maybe a little more questionable, we tried to highlight those two so that you could be aware as a parent. But uh, we are here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. And we do it as part of our show, Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. And we'll see you next week.